Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. So good to have you with us. So good to be back from vacation. Yeah, I really am glad to be vacationing back from it. It's wonderful to have these vacations, but it's good to get back in. What do they say about work? Find something you love to do, and you'll never work another day in your life. I love what I do, and I love my vacations. But, man, it's good to be back. But if a definition of a vacation is a good vacation, is it makes it it's that much more difficult to get back in the swing of things. I had a really good vacation because I'm struggling to get back in the swing of things. But it is good to have you with us, listeners. We appreciate many of you download and listen to this broadcast. I've recently heard from so many saying, Dave, I'm going for Luke up in the uh, where I think he's up in Portland area. Said, Hey, Dave, I'm going for a run. Just want to let you know I'm going to be listening, looking and lending while I'm going for my workout run. And someone else just wrote me and said, hey, I want to connect with you on Facebook. I love what you're doing on the radio broadcast. I mean, I get so much feedback. So thank you to all of you who make this your method of getting information what's going on in the mortgage industry and to share with us how much you enjoy it. And I thank you also for saying how much you enjoy all the participants in this broadcast. There are so many unique personalities you mean unique talents that are a part of this broadcast on a weekly basis, and we all thoroughly enjoy bringing this to you. As we say at the top of every broadcast, this broadcast is created by mortgage professionals for mortgage professionals, and we're the proud recipient of the Progress in Lending Innovation Award. Someone asked, where's Tony Garitano? He used to be on. I just left a message for him. Tony, has, uh, I haven't heard from him just recently, hoping to have him back on at least once a month giving us a tech update. Uh, today's hot topic is uh, many of you that received the email blast uh, from Velma uh, is got the word that we're going to be talking about contract underwriting, how to have a variable cost. And we've got Rachel Harris on with Indicom. Very excited for this interview. Uh, but more and more of our clients are asking about contract underwriting. And as we started researching this topic, we really found out just how in how much there is to learn and know. And then when we find that, we like sharing it with our listening audience. So contract underwriting is going to be the topic. We have Rachel Harris will be on. Alice Alvey is going to be leading that discussion. So excited to get that all going. I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, starting off with United Guarantee, who just happens to be the MI industry leader for the fourth consecutive year in a row. Congratulations to United Guarantee. They have something called uh, Day One Protection with a full file submission full file under full file underwriting from united guarantee delivers the certainty that you are looking for as a mortgage uh, from your mortgage insurer submitting a loan via united guarantee for a full file review means rescission protection um, from the date of the loan closing and to provide accurate and all the required information uh, it is a great program for you to use a pro- we, they provide 24-hour turnaround provided you submit a complete file so it's got great service they're doing this and is one of the leading services out there as it relates to this full file one-day protection uh, submission very great service I encourage you to check it out at ugcorp.com forward slash day one excellent service and uh, they are doing a great approach it's a consultative approach to underwriting which i think is 
fits in with our discussion today. Again, mortgage insurance underwritten by United Guarantee Residential Insurance Company. Also, thank you to Velma, Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. They are the ones that send out our blasts uh, each and every week. Great service. And it's uh, I tell you, the thing that I value most about these guys, as I say each week, is the fact that they take the time to really help craft the message to get the message out and some great technology in fact they just released a new uh crm tool that's within their technology very cool also we want to say thank you to alice joe and andy for all that they contribute sam garcia all the the people that contribute to this broadcast on a regular basis paul malo and the group so anyway looking forward to another great broadcast upcoming conferences let's run through these real quickly the national uh technology conference um is going on the mba's technology conferences at the hyatt regency in orlando that's a march 29th through the first also april co-workshop uh but the mba is putting on great workshop i encourage everyone to attend at least this once you should do it every year, but it's one of those ones. It's at the Capitol Hill. And it's next door to and a part of the National Advocacy Conference, also at the Cap- at the Hilton, uh, Capitol Hilton, uh, April 14th through the 15th. So they're back-to-back, run consecutively. May 3rd through the 6th is the Legal Issues and Regulatory Compliance Conference. Alice, you ought to run that thing. It's at the uh, Chicago Sheraton Hotel and Towers, a very interesting conference, a lot going on. Of course, we have the secondary conference. Just learned today that Chuck Klein, my business partner, Andy's my business partner, will be speaking at that as well. That's May 17th through the 20th. Lots going on, and let's just get into what's starting off with the markets. Joe, I've got your website up. Looks like there's a little bit of a rally in um, in uh, the Fannie Mae 30-year 3% coupon. Interesting. Yeah, we've kind of been in a range this morning. Uh, all on the upside, we've been from, you know, up two to up six for on the day so far, and uh, uh, we were just recently at the upper end of that, and and uh, uh, you know, no risk of getting unfavorable price changes right now, but uh, you know, a little more improvement, we might, might see some favorable changes come in. Yeah. That's it. That's it. What's this? Parked pretty close to six thirty seconds right now, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, existing home sales came out today pretty much as expected. Um, uh, so you know, it wasn't market moving to to any degree. Uh, unfortunately, uh, what was expected was not very good, and, and uh, we wound up at a level just uh, just a little better than what was a very bad last uh, January. This is uh, February yeah. existing home sales a little better than January. Uh, still low inventories and bad weather are being blamed, and I guess that should be expected, especially in some of the uh, hard-hit areas of the country. Yeah, so it's interesting that the inventory issues are some of the ones that more people are focusing on than the weather, which I always found mm-hmm. interesting. But, yeah, it's good to see that came in close to expectations, slightly better than the prior, prior month, if I hear. Looking at your screen. Right. Go ahead. Let's talk about what's on the calendar as we look forward to this, well, uh, well let's, let's talk, talk about, about last week. week. I'm, 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 I'm sorry, let's go yeah, last week. I'm out of sync here. Go. I know it. I know. Go. On. Tell about last week. I was on vacation, well, so I uh, want to hear about let, last week. Yeah, let's talk about last week because it was a good week for mortgage rates. We had a very nice improvement in rates during the week, and most of that came because of what the Fed said. You know, the Fed statement was released uh, in the press conference occurred Wednesday afternoon, and uh, what. What really happened in the press conference and, and in the statement was a couple of things, all of which was good for 
mortgage rates. Uh, number one, the the Fed kind of raised a hurdle for when they expect to begin to raise the Fed funds rate. Okay, and they were very non-specific about that, but they basically just said we want to see better employment numbers and we want to see a more uh, a certain path toward uh, uh, attaining the two percent inflation level. All right, so they kind of raised the hurdle, if you will. And uh, and then they came out with their expectations for economic growth that they showed were, you know, de- uh, slowing down some, a little weaker than what they had expected in December. So not only did they raise the hurdle, but they extended further into the future as to what they expected uh, when when they might expect to be able to clear those hurdles. And then the last thing they did. Um, Day was that they indicated that once the Fed funds rate hikes begin, they might not right. be they might get not move along as quickly as what was previously expected. So um, all of that was perceived as favorable for uh, mortgage rates. Very and dovish, we saw about yeah. as uh, we saw a very uh, a very nice rally. It was about a seventy five basis point improvement in price following the release of the uh, Fed statement. Then, you know, during the week, the economic data that came out kind of supported the Fed's position. Most everything was uh, uh, generally weaker than what had been expected uh, and uh, certainly not showing much growth. That came in the form of several manufacturing measures, uh, a couple of housing measures, industrial production. All of these fell short of expectations. So, again, for the week, uh, most of the improvement came on the Fed announcement, but overall the week, uh, MBS prices improved about a point. Barry, it, it, it's it's interesting how the whole tone with the Feds has been, you know, pushing rates, uh, that any increase out. But yet I read some other news, some other people are saying, you know, no, it could happen, still happen sooner than later. It's just the confusion out there that seems to be there. So you're seeing, what you're seeing as a result of the Feds and what you're reading, because you guys have a whole staff of People that just study everything that's going on. I don't know how many televisions you have on in there that watching all the news and then all the blogs that you subscribe to. But you know, so you're saying the consensus is from what your team is looking at is it's going to be a while yet before we have anticipate any rate increase. I know that's all subject to change with the next. Yeah. Well, and the yeah. Fed's gone out of their way to say you know it's all going to be data dependent. But uh, you know yeah. even if they were to start raising rates. In June, like some have thought, uh, the expectations are that their rates aren't going to get as high as quickly as what people thought. You know, the first rate's sort of insignificant. Ultimately, it's how how high do they take them? And uh, right. I think the perception is that how high they take them ultimately may be lower now than what was expected, and it may take longer to get there. So, uh, I, we certainly it's good would, for the mortgage industry. It it. Yeah, it, it can be. Uh, ultimately, the question about how high, how fast inflation begins to pick up will be very important for the mortgage industry. And in that, as you know, that's the level at which uh, interest rates need to be set. So, right. if they if they don't control inflation uh, quickly and and early enough, uh, it could be considered negative for mortgage rates. So, uh, at this that's point, true. we're still in the good side. We're on the good side, but let's take a look at this week then. So that it looks like an abbreviated or not as much on the economic calendar this week from, uh, well, from it, your it, website. You know, there's, some, there's some pretty good stuff to be pay attention to. Inflation is going to come out oh, yeah. tomorrow, and, and CPI mm-hmm. uh, is an important measure. 
it's interesting to see the impact of oil on inflation and CPI. Uh, last month, the headline CPI number showed a seven-tenth reduction in prices. Uh, that would be from December to January. And now for the month of February, the expectation is because oil prices have stabilized or they certainly hadn't continued to go much lower than they were in January, we're, we're expecting a, a two-tenths increase. Uh, core CPI, both are still very low, though. So uh, we're a long way from the Fed attaining that hurdle. Uh, and then yeah, also okay. new home sales comes out tomorrow. Uh, we'll see if mm-hmm. those hold on. See if they're weather related. Expecting some drop. I, I think probably due to weather, but uh, uh, expecting two hundred uh, four hundred seventy thousand units. Uh, then after that, durable orders comes out on Wednesday, and and uh, the final look at fourth quarter GDP comes out on Friday. Some treasury auctions in between. You know- yeah, the Treasury auctions, we've got the two-year, the five-year, and the seven-year uh, spread out over uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Uh, give us some insight. Someone wrote me and says, why, why does Joe have that up on the website? What is the importance of Treasury auctions? And I was trying to explain to them the flow of money. It, it gives us indication of the strength of the appetite for bonds, generally speaking. Is that How would you characterize That's exactly that, Joe? It. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities are, are similar, especially when you get to the longer-end treasury bonds are similar, and demand for one would generally spill over into demand for the other. So uh, a weak treasury auction will oftentimes, especially if you're talking about the 10-year, uh, uh, 30-year, the 7-year, uh, some of the longer-termed treasury auctions will, will spill over into the mortgage-backed security market. Well, folks, I can't tell you how important this website is to be subscribed to, and it's so dang affordable. Everybody can afford this one. This is one of those ones that's not paying thousands and thousands of dollars. This is a very affordable. It's up-to-date, and, uh, you know, I, I just have it up and open all the time. We'll give you a report on what the markets are doing. I'm watching the ticks as they move across the uh, MBS quote line screen right now. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate the update. Good to be back with you. Good to have you back. We missed you there yeah. a couple of broadcasts before I left on vacations, but it's good to have you back. And, uh, folks, we're going to be right back after this brief break. Look forward to having you, Joe, participate in the discussion about the contract underwriting. Variable costs. You being a CPA, you're always interested in how we can make it a variable cost. So should we get get, get your feedback as well? Sure. Folks, we'll be right back. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS Quoteline delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect. And know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS Quoteline, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS Quoteline today at MBS mbsquoteline.com mbsquoteline.com 646-716-4972 The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin. Normally we would have Paul Marlowe on right here, but unfortunately Paul's got some things he has to attend to right at the moment. He said, uh, tell everyone hello. He said, so check out imfnews.com. Here's what's on there. There were There's some... Uh, 
activity going on regarding the state standards for non-banks likely to cover more than just capital. That's a John Bancroft article. Very interesting about that. And then also one that Paul wrote and just published, hit the publish button on. It says a material amount of MSR reductions coming at J.P. Morgan. What does that mean? Could be interesting. Uh, also, the first time for the first time the fin- since the financial crisis, mortgage debt rises for two consecutive quarters. So uh, we're seeing um, some change in that, except for the loans, also except for the loans to the affluent, non-QM market showing a muted promise. So, you know, Brandon Ivy has got that article out there. Check it out. Good good amount of stuff. Paul does a great job. Uh, IMF News, our friends there at Inside Mortgage Finance do a great job on this blog, kind of keeping you up to date on that. So if you want to have a new service that's just kind of always out there pinging the, the leaders in the industry, this is the website to come to. Uh, and just check out some of the headlines. Paul does a great job, as you know. He's the guy that's in the market doing that and has been doing it for years, one of the more respected uh, reporters on the beat within the mortgage industry. Paul, wish you best. And IMF News, check it out, folks, www.imfnews.com. Alice Alvey, good to have you back, and good to be back with you, I guess, the better way to say it. Looking forward to your segment as you're going to be leading the Hot Topic segment today. But what do you have on the regulatory front for us? Well, on the regulatory front, of course, everybody is now hitting the panic button on the Truth in Lending Real Estate, I'm sorry, TILA, RESPA, Integrated Disclosure, TRID rule, as we call it. Uh, We literally, you know, the phone's ringing off the hook every day. We're happy to help. but And it is just amazing to me. Because of the uptick in volume, as Joe just talked about with rates, companies who had assigned resources to take care of the training and everything that needed to go on with policy and procedure writing are now finding, well, those folks need to go close loans. (laughs) And so companies are really finding themselves uh, strapped and trying to figure out how to implement TILA and still close loans. So that's the challenge we see customers facing today. Um, There is not any evidence that we're going to get this extended. Um, Certainly there are some groups out there who are trying to pressure the CFPB to give us some additional time for this. Um, In my experience, when I've seen that question um, poised to anyone conducting a seminar, their answer is, you have had 21 months. Uh, so at this point, we would all have to say, we've got to make this work <clears throat> for applications effective August 1st. On top of that, I think you want that, to make sure yeah, – yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, I think the key that is when you and I were talking on Friday, uh, it was just amazing to me how people are beginning to just start freaking out. It's like panic button, where is it? And that just is – it's not going to work, folks. You've got to get – there's no reason. And Alice has got some great resources. I hope you're going to talk about that towards the end of your segment here. Yeah, we can. Yeah, well, we do. Yep, go ahead, Andy. Alice, can I jump in real quick? I'm sorry. Sure. Can I ask you just a real quick side note? Everybody, I've been reading the the, the trade uh, publications, and there seems to be a very significant concern about the numbering sequence being gone or different and restructured. Well, what's your take on how significant that's going to be? Well, there are technically numbers there. It's not the same, you know, so you have like a section A and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, A and B, one, two, three, four. So it's a different numbering system, but it's it's still possible and it is not uh for people who close loans it is a major change. But I don't think in the CFPB's eyes it's a deal breaker. Uh, you know, they've given plenty of guidance on how this has to be laid out. So uh, I understand where they're coming from. 
but yeah, they're they're still so numbering not, a lot of them. You're not worried about it though. You're you see it as a something that's doable for the industry as a whole. Well, I think we have to see it as doable. Maybe that's the better way to put it. I mean, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I understand the challenge. I mean, I, I, um, when you look at that, you want things on a stable line. You want to have some predictability. There is a certain amount of predictability within the form. There are other things that will move around a little bit more. But things are sectioned off. You can assign numbers. Uh, so it is. It's a different process, but it it is uh, possible. It, it's well, just a matter of retraining everybody's brain. I think that's the problem. People weren't expecting this level of change. They thought forms were just getting replaced. And when they really get in the weeds, that's when the panic goes off. Well, people are saying that today a lot of mortgage companies do interfaces between the origination system and their accounting system, and they take HUD data, like certain lines mean certain things, and so they can move that into the accounting system seamlessly because they know what's on which line. And some of the talk is that they're not as confident that the integration with the accounting systems are going to be seamless because the numbers move around. Right. And same with servicing, right? So it's the same thing in uh, any of those numbers, I guess probably the same set of numbers, right, your escrows and that type of thing that might be moving uh, to get to those different divisions that need the numbers off of any of the forms or need the data off of anything that's going on at closing. So, um it may move around, but you can make it stable within your shop. Uh, so okay. I, I understand Good. the challenge. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> we, you know, in terms of kind of, the, we've been offering some hot tips of what are the various issues in the weeds that lenders are trying to grapple with. Uh, we actually have a few meetings with clients going over this concept of a disclosure desk. So as more and more companies pick up this issue and identify the dramatic change for loan originators in their script, we are seeing that companies are having to start there. Let's get the originators so they can communicate with this consistently, draft a consistent corporate message about the change, the form, and what is going to happen those last couple of weeks of July and first couple of weeks of August where you don't want to make a mistake. Um, but that's a separate topic for another show. <laughs> so for today, let's make sure we have plenty of time for Rachel. I just want to give you all another update. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau released their final policy on adding the consumer narratives to the complaint database. We have been saying that this is not realistic, it's not fair, it's not right, uh, that consu a consumer can draft any kind of complaint and opt in to have their comments about the dispute. So picture it's a loan modification problem and a customer is going to type in, you know what, I know I don't have a job, but I'm entitled to a modification because the lender shouldn't have given me this loan in the first place, right? Some kind of crazy comment that's going to get posted. Now the CFPB is going to have a 90-day grace period. Uh, they feel that there's some balance in this because the lender can in turn post their own response to this. Well, if I'm a lender, i got to get lawyers, i got to start a whole new complaint process Am I really going to respond back to the public? Well, this consumer doesn't exactly know what's going on, and we all should know we should have a job when we need a modification. I mean, what are you going to say right? as a lender? Mm -hmm. Maybe you make a policy of I can't even respond. Uh, so I think this deserves a lot of look at for companies. You need to expand your complaint policies. You need to take a look at what kind of complaints you've been getting. How would you respond? Maybe check out some of the other complaints other lenders are getting and make sure you have a formal policy for uh, managing those complaints that consumers will be now issuing publicly. Talk about a social experiment and reputation management issue. Uh, and then wow. last but not least, 
other heads up on the deadlines is June 15th for the new FHA handbooks. And maybe later next month we can uh, talk a little bit about some of the nuances we're seeing in that for FHA changes that will be effective in June on top of everything else. So that's my update for now, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Good update. A lot of people give us feedback. They love your updates. And they, at the same time, I, their knees go weak sometimes listening to all the stuff coming down the line still. <laughs> Folks, we're going to be right back. Get back with, uh, we've got Sam Garcia coming on to The Profit Doctor. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. If you have questions about mortgage regulations, Indicom Mortgage U has free answers. If you need ideas about how to reinvent your organization, Indicom Mortgage U will share great ideas. When you need help at any step of the loan process, give us a call or send an email. The Indicom team of experts have been helping mortgage players from origination through servicing for over 30 years. Your success is our focus. Whether it's a quick question or long-term support, portfolio, conventional, or government lending, it's a competitive market. So let Indicom Mortgage U give you the edge. Uh, it's good to have you with us, everybody. We've got Sam Garcia on here. Sam is the uh, founder of MortgageDaily.com. Great website. Got a lot of information on here. A good, great, good compliment to what Paul is doing off to the side in uh, what in the industry. So I, I love a lot of the stories, Sam, that you've got up here. By the way, it's good to have you with us. What you got? Loan origination. I see that as one of the top signs. Yeah, always good to be here. Uh, yeah, you know, Ellie May put out its uh, monthly report uh, this last week, yeah. and uh, basically the closing rate fell to 16% in February from 62% in January. Um, while, you know, that could be a negative thing, it's also kind of a positive thing because when people get busy, uh, they tend to slow down. So the process takes a little longer, mm -hmm. but, you know, that's just a reflection of refinances picking up. Um, we saw, however, that... Uh, that the uh, turnaround improved by three days, so that's a good sign. Uh, refinances yep. accounted for 59% of February's closings, so that was the highest share that we've seen since March 2013. Um, moving on to uh, 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 the Mortgage Market Index, which we produce in conjunction with Optimal Blue, we saw that um, mortgage activity was up 11% last week, um, and refinances surged 18%. And compared to hmm. a, a year ago, yeah, that's good news, right? Um, Interesting, yeah. Compared to, compared to a year ago, uh, overall activity has jumped by more than three quarters. Um, the jumbo conforming spread, something we keep an eye on, fell to seven basis points. So it's only seven basis points more for a jumbo loan this last week than uh, for a conforming loan. That was uh, down from 10 basis points the prior week. Um, we saw that uh, that CoreLogic put out a report about negative equity, and what we like to focus on is the average U.S. LTV. And we saw that the uh, average LTV was 59.7% in the fourth quarter of last year, kind of up a little bit, so a little bit riskier uh, uh, factor for the portfolio, the U.S. aggregate portfolio. Uh, it was uh, only 59.2% in the third quarter. But, you know, LTVs have declined from 61.9% a year ago, so uh, that's an improvement for the overall portfolio. And a matter of interest is Nevada. Nevada has an average LTV of 73.8%, highest in the nation. Um, yeah. Another, we it saw was that. Interesting, uh, we, you know, I saw this. I saw the story, and it was interesting. Texas is down near, you know, down near the the the. the 
lowest LTV. So that was just interesting to see the the spread. Very interesting. Very interesting amount of data there. Good yeah, job. Sorry, yeah. really, really catch you going. Yeah, um, um, we're we're in the middle of uh, preparing our uh, fourth quarter mortgage employment index, which basically uh, anecdotally uh, tracks mortgage layoffs and hirings and comes up with somewhat of a net, shows you where a lot of the activity is happening by company. And uh, in preparation for that, we've identified more than a thousand recent layoffs. Uh, these are just kind of miscellaneous layoffs we covered um, for the non-major stories. And basically, we, we, we picked up 500 or more than 500 layoffs recently at Chase and more than 600 at Bank of America. Uh, yeah, biggest mm-hmm. companies take the biggest hits, of course, when times uh, change. Yep. But uh, loan modification volume has uh, fallen, um, which you know is a good sign because it suggests that just the level of distressed borrowers is continuing to decline. Um, we saw that they were down between December and January, the number of modifications that uh, – that have uh, been completed, and uh, modifications have fallen by more than a fifth from a year earlier. So that has been on a track heading down, and uh, you know I think we hope to see that there will be no modifications at some point in the not too distant future, uh, indicating that you know the the level of distress is is way down. So uh, uh, that's a good sign there. Um, we saw that uh, the. Black Knight reported delinquency, and the U.S. foreclosure inventory fell below 800,000 properties uh, in February, and that was the first time it's been below that number since December 2007, pre-crisis. We also saw that the 30-day delinquency rate, excluding foreclosures, was Mm -hmm. 5.36%, and that was the lowest level since August 2007. So another sign of uh, declining distress in the uh, U.S. home loans. Um, Foreclosures, we saw that uh, that they they fell 2% between January and February, according to RealtyTracks data. And uh, they were down 7% from a year earlier. And in Maryland, one foreclosure was filed for each 564 housing units. That's the worst foreclosure uh, rate in the country. And one of the few times we've seen Maryland at the top of the list. Um, And finally, uh, yeah, yeah. Finally, uh, we uh, we reported on the Fannie Mae survey of senior mortgage executives. And what was interesting in that report was that 45% of the uh, executives surveyed uh, indicated that demand had increased over the prior three months for government mortgages. And another, you know, two-thirds of the group said that they expect to see even bigger demand ahead. And, of course, this follows the recent reduction in mortgage insurance premiums at FHA. We could see that that's having an impact. So, um be interesting to see how FHA does as far as a market share this year. Yeah, yeah, they, they wouldn't mind shedding some of the market share they did have, so it'll be interesting. Sam, great job. Appreciate it. Folks, check out Sam's uh, website at mortgagedaily.com and also get a hold of Sam at 214-521-1300. Great service. Very uh, one of those ones that's got lots of data. I met Sam through Andy Shell. It was the profit doctor. Not surprising when you look at all the numbers that are out there, but it was Andy that first turned me on to it. And um, it's really some great, good, good quantitative information that you put out uh, on the market. So it's good stuff. I, we've had several listeners call me and say, Dave, you know what? I, I didn't think I was interested in the information, on that kind of information, until you started hearing about it. it. It really has helped me when I talk about the industry. I throw out some of the bites I heard Sam mention on your radio program. I throw out a sound bite. It makes me sound like I'm really at top of what's all that's going on in the industry. So people are picking up on it, Sam. Good job. Appreciate it. 
Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. You bet. You have a great week, Sam. See you back here next week. Profit Doctor, what you got for us? You're always hey, into the numbers. Dave. That's why I wasn't surprised that you'd like Sam's uh, material that you had found uh, some time ago and then it turned me on to it, so we're glad to have him on. What do you got for us yeah. today? I, yeah. You know, I, you well, know I like so much I like in the way. Uh, one of the things I wish you could tell about would be the story about when you did a review of a firm recently. Just there's so many people that are struggling, don't even know that they're struggling on the area of accounting. And that's why the profit doctor needs to be in. You need to call the, you need to have a health check folks on just that relates to the accounting side of it. So I would just love to have you give some insights to the best you can to some of the things that you're seeing out there in the marketplace and where people are just some areas where people are messing up that need to be focused on. And then when they right, don't know Dave, what to I'll, do, they call you. <laughs> I'll do, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, well, the the situation you're specifically referencing is about a um, fairly large, uh, sophisticated, uh, multi-business line company that we're working with, and um, we looked at their mortgage accounting operation and discovered that there was a, a number of points of improvement, almost to the point of remediation, and needing to really dive deep and, and – uh, address them on a comprehensive basis, some of the ways things are being done. And so anybody is vulnerable. There are there is so much to doing the accounting right. There's so much to dealing with the compliance issues right. Even even one of the new topics that we're we're talking more and more about now is called a compliance management system. And a compliance management system is another part of putting all the pieces together in the new CFPB world that we as mortgage lenders lenders face. And it's not about the computer system. It's not a computer system system. It's a compliance management system means a bunch of pieces that all work together to result in an acceptable outcome. And like just real briefly with the compliance management system, you know, you have to, uh, you, you have to have one. This is a mandate by the CFPB. They have, they have said that every mortgage bank must have a compliance management system is not an option. The way that they actually say it is they say all non-depository consumer financial services companies are required to implement a compliance management system to preserve and validate compliance with all federal consumer law. So it's not a choice. If you're listening to this show today and you're like, oh, huh, I didn't know I had to do that. Well, well you do. And in fact, it's it's identified <laughs> in the CFPB examiner's manual that they're going to check. And one of the things they're going to do when they check is they're going to look at your compliance management system structure, and based on their initial review, if they see, oh, it's working, it's, they've got one, it's got all the parts to it, they they followed the rules, and look, they're doing it right, and, and they may test a little bit, but it actually specifically says in the examiner manual that if it's good, then do less. If it's bad, then do more. So they don't use those words. I'm paraphrasing. But that's that's the point. You, you, you have to have one. You have to have it running well. And if you do do it well, you'll get a brownie point from the CFPB in the, in the form of they're not going to hassle you more. They're going to hassle you less. So we want less. So there's so much to this. And I know we want to jump over to Rachel as quickly as possible. But I, we, maybe we do another show on this. Alice mentioned the other topic on some of the trade issues. 
for another show. But, we, you know, this is yep. a big, big deal, Dave. It's huge. It's complicated. There's a lot to it. There's 50 pages in the CFPB examiner manual just addressing compliance management systems. And I don't mean compliance like QC kind of stuff or even compliance like did you give your till in three days kind of stuff. It's that, but it's so much more. That's only a small snippet of it. It's a big, big deal that affects everything about your business, your product life cycles, and making certain that all of the company as a whole even is operating correctly. And it even goes on to say that all of business, the business line heads have to have the compliance management system um, sign off on their activities. They don't use those words either, but that's basically the all the business processes have to be done under the umbrella of the approval of the compliance management system. This is a big deal, very significant. We'll talk more. Very significant. Can't wait. Yeah, we got. We definitely have to have someone ping me already and said, yeah, I don't want to hear about it, but I got to hear about it. So it's those things that you don't want to hear about, that you want to hear about, that you need to hear about. That's what, We're going to have a broadcast on that. Folks, this is just lots of information out there, what's going on. Uh, I want to say a special note of thank you to Optimal Blue Secondary Interactive as they sponsor the Profit Doctor segment. Thank you so yes. much, Profit Doctor, for being here. Andy Shell, also known as Andy Shell. Partner in MBS Mortgage, <laughs> Mortgage Banking Solutions. I mean, all right, folks, we'll be right back. We got Rachel Harris coming up. We're going to talk about contract underwriting. Alice will be leading a discussion, and we'll be right back after this brief break. Mortgage Banking Solutions is the preeminent management consulting firm to the residential mortgage lending industry. No other firm in the U.S. offers the menu of services or the level of expertise to the industry. If you're looking for help converting from best efforts to hedging or need help with bookkeeping to know your profit per loan, if you are interested in making the transition from broker to banker, or if you just need a roadmap for success, Mortgage Banking Solutions' primary focus is to enable executives to take their business to the next level and guide them down a path towards success and profitability. With over 300 Combined years of experience in all facets of mortgage lending, the Mortgage Banking Solutions team of professionals has the expertise and know-how to help you accomplish your goals. New warehouse lines of credit, broker-to-banker transitions, transitioning to hedging, financial and accounting services, or meeting your capitalization needs. If you need help with these or any other aspects of your business, please contact the Mortgage Banking Solutions sales team to see how we can help you at 512-977-9900. It's 512-977-9900. Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Good to have you with us, everybody. I am very interested in the hot topic today. A number of our clients have contacted me to say, Dave, how do we go about doing this? Is contract writing, underwriting the best? It seems like the right thing to do, but they go hot and cold on it. And so we are doing some research on this topic and in the course of doing that, I had a wonderful conversation with Rachel uh, Harris, who is a, what has been responsible for this part of the service within Indicom. And so Rachel is with Indicom. Alice is with Indicom. And so I've asked Alice to really kick this discussion off. Again, we're looking at how can we can control costs when we have rates drop and we have a surge of refinance volume come through the shop. We have service level agreements and levels that we try to put out there maintain and that goes to heck of a handbasket so how do we do this and is this the solution so let's get the experts on alice with that introduction i'm going to turn it over to you oh thanks very much dave hi rachel it's great to have you on the show so i'd, I'd like to give you uh, an opportunity to tell people a little bit about yourself so they know you know what a great background you have on the subject 
Thank you, Alice, and thank you for having me on the show today. I have been with Indicom for a little over five years, and in my time here until the most recent year, have worked within our underwriting division as as an underwriter, as a team lead, as a project manager, and then was our director of underwriting for about two and a half years before transitioning over to our client solutions team. And we work with our sales and our ops teams and our clients to make sure that all of our engagements are set up the best that they can be and really is the liaison between all three and certainly have found that that background in underwriting is helping me there as well. Well, and you had a large team that you've managed, and you've, you've had to do a lot with underwriters over the years. <laughs> so you know the personalities and the challenges. To say the least, we're a, we're an interesting bunch underwriters, <laughs> and every uh, every company is a little bit different to add on to all that. So it's certainly a an important factor that you want to weigh in as you're setting up a a contract engagement. So you've seen a lot of different ways that lenders leverage outsourcing. Um, let's start with some of the best practices that you've seen within the underwriting space, then in particular. Um, since we do have the opportunity to see how many different lenders set up their spaces, some things that we've seen that are definitely best industry practices are the lenders that come at things looking for a true partnership, that they want someone who's going to both dig them out of the hole that they may be in right now because of the refinance surge, but also be a long-term partner to them to contribute to their success six months from now, two years from now, that when you're looking for a short-term engagement, it really takes some time for an underwriter to look and feel like they're a part of your team, and working together on the long term is generally the best way to accomplish that. And on that look and feel, the other thing that we've seen there is really making sure that the vendor's employees feel like they're a part of the team that you have there at the lender shop, that it minimizes any customer impact that you may have there, it gives everybody an extra level of comfort, and for those employees that are working within the vendor shop to complete loans for your company, it really is another way to make them feel like they're a part of your team. When I was dedicated to a specific project when I first started here, I heard from that, you know, that lender and their employees and I was in their team meetings and I saw their memos it's, you know, I, I felt like I was a part of their team because I heard more news about their organization than I did about my own employer sometimes, which sounds strange, but it's positive things for those underwriters. And then the other thing that we see is just taking a phase control to it. You didn't get in a hole overnight. You're not going to get out of one overnight. So what's the <laughs> best way that we're going to <laughs> undig this backlog and help everybody have good quality, and really set the team up for the best long-term success. Well, that's a good Alice, um, could I place. jump I in? Could, yep, I was just going to say that. I was yeah, just going to say this, I, uh, the way this is structured is to just kind of, we'll make sure Dave and Andy and Joe, if you have questions. So right now it seems like we're talking about the hole that can get dug, right? <laughs> yeah, and I wanted to ask a question on that. It, a lot of lenders say, well, can I come to you when I have a hole and I'm dug myself into a hole? Is is that How do most people come to you? Do they Knowing the mortgage industry, I suspect this is a rhetorical question, uh, but do most people come to you after the holes, they're, they're buried in a hole, or do they come with preparation? It seems like we're a reactive industry is where I'm going with this. 
What do you see uh, as a common and that's, most? That's a fair statement, most, and we all have seen that over the years, right? That sometimes things kind of sneak up on you, and it comes too far, too fast, and you are trying to dig out of a situation. I would say that equally as often, though, we encounter lenders that they see a problem coming two months down the road or three wow, months down good. the road and say, I don't think that I'm going to have the staff for this, so let's be proactive to keep up with the growth plans that are in place for the year so that they can meet those goals. Smart, 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 smart. Good, good. Sorry, Alice had to jump in with that question while we were on no, that that's, point. that's great. So, and, and I think that's an important aspect that we talk about. I mean, certainly we're there to help a lender. You know, it sounds like, too, you've been involved in projects where you may be helping, but the, the better process is, uh, to understand that phase control and make sure the teams are really working well together as, as one of the uh, good best practices. So, you know, how do how do you make the correction quickly? How do you handle this type of scalability that needs to go on, both, you know, uh, in working with the lender and then also uh, within Indicom? And with those, I think that's a, a great due diligence topic for both the lender and for the vendor as you're, you know, initially speaking with each other to see if it's going to be a good fit. What is each person's experience in, has the lender ever outsourced before on the same note for the vendor? Have If obviously they're used to outsourcing, but what has been their experience in managing a project of a similar size and being able, or, or larger, and being able to grow that, not, you know, some organizations seem like that they cater more towards a smaller shop or for a national lender. And when the reality is the vast majority of the market is somewhere in between those two things. So what's the best way that you can be set up for that scalability and flexibility so that you've got a controlled approach to how you're working together? Yeah, so Sorry, with that, yeah, just going to pass it to you, Andy. Perfect. Oh. Thanks, Alice. Well, Rachel, one of the things that, that I learned a long time ago about mortgage banking is only touch files that close. So if you've got an application that's not going to close, don't touch it. Right? Also, only touch files that close. Convert apps to cash fast because all we care about is cash. We don't want a pile of paper. We want money we can spend. So the other thing is uh, only have variable costs. You don't want to have fixed costs cause with a, because volume is variable. If volume goes up, then we've got to ramp up. If volume goes down, then we've got to ramp down. So you don't want to have all these sunk, fixed costs. And you just said the word scalability, and that's exactly the solution. That's how you have variable costs is that you don't have fixed costs because it's variable because you're using a third-party resource to provide that scalability. So how does, how does a company – how do you – you're in the business to make money too. So how do you manage the influx and flows of everybody needs to have you as a service because everybody needs scalable operations. This is the profit doctor speaking. Everybody listening, you have to have this service. You have to have this service. You must have scalable operations. So, well, and I want to just add, I want a footnote on that ratio because what the question is, someone is going to bear the fixed cost. Someone is bearing that fixed cost. Either you're in the com is or some other contract underwriter or the, the company that you're contracting with. So, you know, when you have this, it's like you, people are transferring it out. It, it seems like they're going to be paying a lot more for this service. And is I'd love to get the insights into where the cost savings is. If it is a variable cost, does the variable cost 
so much greater that if you had it in-house that it's, it doesn't make sense. Speak to that because that's been a big issue for a lot of people. I'd love to go to a variable cost model, but I'm off. I'm I'm shipping out or outsourcing the the cost, and it's got to be a whole lot bigger than if I had it in house. Speak. I think that's what you're saying, Andy. So so within that variable cost, that that certainly is historically a proponent for outsourcing is to be able to have that variable cost model correct. But within that, there there obviously is a fixed bottom line, and being transparent with with each other as far as what the growth plans are really important so that scalability can be planned. There is generally going to be some minimum threshold that's going to be in place, you know, both for the lender and typically the vendor is sharing in some of the risk that's going to be there. So if the goal is to underwrite 100 loans per day, the minimum may be quite a bit less than that. So if it was if you were not reaching that 100 loans per day, but volume was dramatically different, certainly the lender may share some responsibility some there too but the lender also, but the vendor also has some accountability to make sure that their staff is performing because until they reach that level or beyond it they're not at their full profitability so that's huge as far as how the how you maintain the cost but the other thing for the profitability is so if you're able to shift some of your resources that were potentially doing the service to the variable cost what are the other things that you could do with your resources that might look to your profitability in other ways. Could you shift some of those internal resources to another area so that you're potentially solving the problems of two units versus just one right then? Can your vendor take over some of the training for you? Reducing some of those training and the management resources is a significant overhead for a lender. And I mean, the other thing is the, you know, we all wish that we didn't have to touch all those applications until we actually knew that they were going to be that pile of cash that we're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is that we do. And the faster that we do that and we're able to turn it into the pile of cash, the better everyone in the industry is, right? So how, what could you do for your turn times? How much more quickly could you get a loan to the closing table so that you are eventually seeing that end goal reached versus, a loan that sits in process for far longer than you ever want it to be because you're so backlogged. Well, and I want to make sure everybody picked up on one of the most important things that Rachel said, and that is the concept that you can't just look at, well, an underwriter's hourly rate, if I hired them myself, would be X, and now an underwriter's hourly rate, if I use a third-party provider, you know, if I outsource that, is going to be Y, and that's going to be higher. Did everybody pick up on, we pick up also training, you know, an outsource provider also picks up the management costs, and that's all in that hourly rate, and in the long run, is probably uh, saving you money when you factor in those, plus you get that time back. And then as Rachel mentioned, it's the shifting then, the ability to shift resources and get additional items done. So you really get some multiplicity with it. Well, let me make, make, it, let me make an assumption about that, what you just said, Alice. That also means that when you do it on a third-party basis, you only you only pay for the activity that gets done. You don't sit there and pay for somebody to play Minesweeper on their computer. So it's it's a hundred percent capacity. I mean, it's a hundred percent active. It's hundred percent doing stuff rather than having salaried people who are mostly productive, but sometimes not. Right. If you're overstaffed at the current time, right? You know, I've had companies ask that about, you know, well, I want to have extra staff running, and I want to make sure I have the ability to handle those emergency or those rush loans. I said, great, you can have a fire department hanging around if you want, but you know what a fire department does when they're not putting out fires. 
you know, they're they're sitting around. <laughs> they're playing cards, they're cooking dinner, you know, they're you know <laughs> maybe they're doing school seminars, I don't know, but it's they're not putting out fires so all the time. Uh so anyway, that's my analogy on that one. All right. So <laughs> uh, anyway, let's Joe, do you have any questions for Rachel? Yeah, do you want to jump yeah. in here? I think I do. And in my prior life, I found some value in having outsourced underwriting from a uh, risk perspective, meaning uh, uh, if the underwriter was uh, uh, somebody else's employee and not mine, then there was an opportunity if a mistake was made to receive some, some compensation. Is that still a factor? Um. Certainly, it can be a factor for some lenders that are going to be there. I would say the biggest way that it comes into play is the increased amount of quality assurance that happens to that underwriter, that your chances of a mistake getting actually making it to the closing table are a little bit less because Mm -hmm. vendors are going to perform their own quality assurance, and typically just the amount of loans that are getting picked, it's going to be a different sample than what your own team may pick while you're there at the lender. So it's certainly an increased number of files that is available, so your chances of something going through are a bit less. And then, I mean, there is also some opportunity that most contracts are going to contain some provisions for those mistakes that could potentially get made. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm finding with most lenders that is not as much of a factor as that it used to be, that everyone seems to understand that there's a there is a is certainly a limit to what is is being put in place there, and really the goal is to avoid those loans closing with the errors at all, and anything that you can do to prevent that is is a positive thing. Uh, Alice, I want to make sure we cover the licensing issues that are uh, that can come into play in with contractors. Yeah, that yeah, absolutely. Because you know, uh, Rachel, can you speak a little bit to that? You know, because uh, in a lot of states, several states, uh, I forget the exact number, maybe a dozen or so, don't underwriters need to be licensed uh, under the Safe Act? There are, and each state um, interprets it, unfortunately, slightly differently than the other ones, <laughs> which is the, you, right, you the, know, the, the interesting thing that's in place when you're looking at the interpretation of all the different states. And the, some states interpret it differently for a third-party provider than they do for the lender themselves. So it's certainly an important question to factor in as you're looking for an outsourcing partner is where where can their underwriters actually underwrite? Um, where your footprint is as the lender is going to be a huge part of that decision because obviously you're going to want someone to be able to underwrite in as many of those states as possible. But then are there are there any differences between those? So states where an underwriter may have to work in a licensed location or actually have a license themselves. So tell us, uh, Dave, was there anything, any other questions you had on that subject? No, I, I just want to make sure people understand that there, there is uh, some licensing issues that need to be taken into consideration, and you work with the right vendor, they've got that covered for you. Uh, I think I'll just want to put in one other thing that's following up on something that Andy had, or Joe had asked, and I think one of the things that come as a benefit of this is it. it's so good to have third parties. That's why consultants, that's why we do so well as consultants. Alice, you come into companies. You help pick up on things you might otherwise be missing. by value. If you're just always just the knowledge base is coming just from within your own company, getting all the knowledge that's out there. And I think by retaining or bringing in a third party underwriting firm, you're going to get some fresh flow water, things that you may not be seeing otherwise. You're not going to be stagnant with just your knowledge base. You've got some people saying, have you guys thought about this or that? And that's why a firm like what you're doing 
Rachel, is an added benefit that's just an ancillary. I hadn't thought about that. No, we weren't looking at that. We need to be. That type of aha moments when you have a third-party contractor in there like yourselves. Can we hit one other point real quick, too, please, Rachel? Yes. Um, just sure. so we're, we're clear, that is that your services, correct me here, is applicable to con- conventional underwriting, not not government, but but make sure because you have to be an employee to be an FHA underwriter. But is that correct? Is that is that right? That that is an important distinction for frontline underwriting. So when the decision is at the initial decision prior to the loan closing is being made on behalf of the lender, the um, and outsourcing that would be applicable for conventional loans only. Now, if you're looking at a loan perhaps being purchased in a correspondent lender situation, so someone else has already made that delegated decision, then that that is different, and you can look at government loans for outsourcing in those situations. Okay, so let me say that back to you. If you're you're a correspondent on a non-delegated basis, so you're doing a lot of the work, is that right? And so you're going to send a file to someone else to close, or you're going to close with their approval. So say that for me again. I want to make sure I get this right. So if you are if you are the lender that's working with a correspondent and the correspondent is delegated so or it's went through your own non-delegated mm-hmm. channel and your own employee has made the decision but as you're doing a pre-purchase review on that loan or a due diligence audit as it may come in before you actually transition it from your correspondent's warehouse line onto your own then that work is not considered frontline underwriting and you can look at government loans for that type of more of an underwriting audit Oh, I get it. I get it. Oh, good, good, good. Great point. Good clarification. Thank you. Yeah, good, good, yeah. Alice, I know well, we just got a few minutes before we got to wrap this up, so I'll let you take this to to the uh, wrap up this interview, but it's very interesting. We just only scratched the surface, obviously. Well, I think the last thing that was on uh, that we wanted to make sure we talked about was just the quality metrics, you know, and how we how mm-hmm. the reporting, right? So obviously, uh, we're on the receiving side of the vendor management that you know Andy's always talking about, and we're talking about the importance of vendor management, and so the reports that are provided on this and the metrics that are used. So, what quality metrics, uh, Rachel, do you find are important to the lenders? Um, For those, I would say the biggest thing is making sure that they're well-defined and that there's a way to track all the metrics that you're wanting to track. So as opposed to speaking in a generic term to say that you want good quality, which we all want, of course, but what is your definition of good quality? So if it's a loan that's free of sellability errors, what percentage of that is, is acceptable to you as the lender? And are you providing those results that you're receiving good and bad to your vendor so that they can that they can work and they can improve? The thing that we look to measure within our internal quality assurance teams is we really want to make sure that we're talking about apples to apples as opposed to apples to oranges. So if we're doing quality assurance checks but we're checking for none of the same things that the lender would be, that would not be the most efficient measure. But if we take what the lender is doing and we're doing – that and then some, then we generally find that our results are going to be very comparable to what the lender could be, what the lender will find themselves so that we can talk about performance improvement plans or anything else, any other type of coaching that might be applicable for an associate in the same type of language. That is an essential point. That is so important. Because if you ask the operations manager, how many of your loans have pre-purchased steps on logo? 
all of them. Yes, the president of the company. How many loans have pre-purchase tips? And I'll go, none of them. Because they don't have the way to track it. They don't measure it. They don't re- <laughs> right? They, they don't report it. And by just what you just said forces them to have to know the answer to that question. That's good. Absolutely. I, I do think that people all of a sudden pay attention to metrics that they didn't even realize were able to be obtained because of the way that we in particular manage through the checklists and through our proprietary software, Kaizen. Uh, we're able to just give incredible reports to folks, not only on the daily action, but also on the internal QA that's done on those loans. So they get a very deep dive in some data. Uh, Rachel, you want to elaborate on that? Of course, if we have another 30 seconds. It's true that I mean the the quality of the reporting that you're being able to to provide is huge there and being able to dive into an issue. So at first look you may see that you only have a 2% sellability error rate on within your team and you may think that you're doing great, but if you really take that deep dive and you find out that 50% of those errors are all in regards to self-employed income analysis then while the rate is not bad to begin with, imagine if you did a little training in that area, the type of improvement that you might see. And that's something that we use to target and help our teams improve all the time. Well, we're a big fan of outsourcing, uh, and I think this is a valuable discussion. Again, we've just only scratched the service, Rachel and Alice, and we need to – I'm sure a lot of our listeners have a lot more questions uh, Rachel, what's the best way, or who's the appropriate person, now that you're kind of moving around within Indicom some areas, who's the appropriate person for people to connect with if they're interested in learning more about this topic and want to talk one-on-one? I'm happy to speak to anybody one-on-one, and I can. Um, my work email is rharris at Indicom.net. Okay, good. And, of course, you can always get a hold of Alice. We Alice will make sure she or her team will also get it directed across there. Uh, thank you so much, Rachel. I think it's what's most interesting is a lot of people say, yeah, but I want to use an MI company. And then what I found out is a lot of MI companies are contracting with Rachel and her team there at Indicom for that service. So you'll probably be working with a company like Indicom, if not Indicom directly, even if you go through an MI company. So anyway, lots of good stuff. Thank you so much. It's fascinating to hear the various options out there. We recommend this and we highly ask you to consider connecting with a uh, contract underwriting service such as Indicom. They do a great job, so we're a big fan of that firm. Thank you so much. I'm looking at the markets just as we're heading out the door to uh, the conclusion of the project discussion i'm on the uh, course mbs quote line that's where i own the place i look we're up 44 four thirty seconds joe is that what it looks like right at the moment yep, we're up four we're a little off the highs so back in the middle of the range a little off the highs so yeah it may not be enough for repricing uh some positive repricing but at least it gets up check it out folks good to have you with us we'll be back next week and so check out the website as who will be the, each week what will be the topic and because it does shift around occasionally, especially on some of the pressing matters. It's good to have you with us. Look forward to seeing you back here next week. Thank you. This has been Lincoln on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening.